This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. She is unique, she is an individual, she is a person, but she's from you. I love Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to rule over him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from near his heart to be loved by him. Marriage is just one of God's wonderful gifts to mankind. It's something to treasure and sustain. The guidelines he gives in Genesis 2 are as valid as ever. To follow them is to make the honorable, godly choice. But what do you do when the foundation of your marriage starts to shake and crumble? Today, Pastor Josh will be reading the story of Adam and Eve, whose perfect relationship was broken in Eden's fall. He'll examine this road bump with you and look at how you can learn from their experience. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of Genesis chapter 2 as he begins his message, Marriage After Eden. in two spots, I would ask you to turn to you in your Bibles. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll eventually make our way over to John chapter 2, so you need to just mark both those places, and we'll read those together in a moment. But before I do that, let me just talk to you a little bit about idolatry, and you might think, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the human condition, of course, humanity, was created to be in perfect fellowship with God, yes or no? Right, that God created us to be with him. It is only in that spot that we are complete, that we are whole, and that we are completely and utterly satisfied and fulfilled, is in a relationship with God. Now, when that relationship with God was broken, all of a sudden, people started pursuing other things in the gaps of their hearts to try to fill in the gaps of their hearts. They pursued other things to try to find fulfillment and identity and worth and purpose, and in pursuing those things, uh, we have this term that I like to label, the Bible calls it what it is. It's idolatry. Idolatry, what is idolatry? Anytime you try to fill the void in your life and your identity with something other than what it was created for, and that is God, when we place something else above it. So you might ask this morning, well, what does that have to do with marriage? And often I find that humanity tends to turn to the marriage relationship to often find their fulfillment, their completion. That marriage becomes the ultimate goal. If I just find the right person, they will complete me. They'll be my soulmate. They'll bring me satisfaction and fullness and fulfillment all the days of my life. Many times, this view of marriage turns marriage into seeking how much someone can get out of another person to fulfill them. Sometimes even marriage becomes idolized. Spouses want their partner to be Jesus for them, to do the things that only Jesus can do for them, and things can get tense. In John chapter 4, you might remember that Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well, and the nature of her issue was that she was thirsty for things spiritually, and she was trying to satisfy that spiritual thirst and emptiness 
by getting married time after time after time again and being in relationship after relationship. And Jesus recognizes, no, what you need, only I can give you. If you let me give you a drink, you will never thirst again. And Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction for the hungry soul. Why does this matter in marriage? Well, I think that today, I think it's been like this, well, since the beginning, as we'll see today, but even more so today because of our cultural elements that we've put into our marriages. I think what people's expectation and definition of marriage leads to is marriages that instead of being full of servant-heartedness and service, we find marriages full of selfishness. Instead of being about personal sacrifice, it's about personal gratification. Instead of marriages being built on commitment, marriages are built on convenience. I believe that God designed marriage to be fulfilling and satisfying, but it is most fulfilling and satisfying when it is built on the picture of Jesus Christ and his love for his church. This morning, I want to look at two marital events that God was involved in. The first one kicked off creation. The second one kicked off the ministry of Jesus. At the first marriage event, something very sweet became bitter. At the second, something normal became sweet. The first one was torn apart by sin. The second one was brought to life by grace. And this morning, we're going to dive into these. And what I want you to go away having learned is the heart of God and his purpose for your marriage relationship. That God didn't design marriage, as you know, just to make you happy, but to make you holy. And when you embrace God's design for your relationship, it becomes very sweet. Genesis chapter 2 tells us in verse 20 and paints a picture of the very first marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, we read, So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. So let's take a, just a quick snapshot of the first marriage. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first marriage relationship consisted of only three people. Adam, Eve, and God. Right? There was no broken fellowship. Everyone was in perfect union with one another. We know from the scripture that the Bible teaches us that Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the morning. There was no, uh, there was no brokenness between the relationship between God and them or them with each other. They knew his perfect presence. They were walking in his perfect plan. Everything was as it should be. You imagine having a relationship where you, your spouse, and God were in a perfect environment unhindered by any sin. How incredible that would be. Well, that was it. But then we know what happened. Rebellion and sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's sin. And death entered into the world, and death also entered into relationships. And so I want to take a look briefly at the pre-sin condition of marriage and compare it to the post 
sin condition of marriage and see what we can learn. Three points here. Number one, if you're taking notes, jot it down. Before sin, we learn, chapter 2, verse 25, that there was no shame in the marriage relationship. There was no shame in the marriage relationship. In verse 25 of chapter 2, we read, And they were both, that is Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. We need to think about that. Adam never had to answer the question, right? Does this make me look fat? There was no fat, right? There was only Eve, the ape, the horse, the cow, and it was a pretty clear choice, you know? It could be literally said, no, I'm not comparing your wife to a cow. Please stop. I'm not doing that. I saw someone looking at me. This is already off to a very bad start. But here's the point. There was no definition of beauty. There was only Eve. That was it. To Adam, she, whatever she was, was all that he wanted, was all that he needed, was the picture-perfect definition of beauty for him, as it should be. He only had eyes for Eve, and there was no reason for either of them to be ashamed because there was no deception, no immorality, no moral failures, no hurtful words, no unrealistic expectations, no one to compare to, and nothing was hidden. They were just content as God designed them to be with one another. But what, what happens after sin enters into the world? Well, we read that as soon, almost the first immediate result of sin was that the marriage relationship experienced shame. In Genesis chapter 3, we read in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So once there was a point in time where it was just no shame, no embarrassment, perfect satisfaction, and now there was this sense of something's wrong. And something's wrong with me because I don't have any clothes on. And something's wrong with you because you don't have any clothes on. I don't know if we should be looking at each other in this way, you know, without any clothes on. And, oh, here comes God. I don't think God should see us in this state where we're this vulnerable. And that was never even a thought, never even in the imagination before this. The dictionary in the English dictionary defines shame as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. The awareness that something's wrong, and I'm ashamed because it's, it's sourced in something I did. After sin, the husband and the wife were hiding from each other. They were hiding from God. There was brokenness in their union. There was insecurity in their confidence around one another with their nakedness and their body image. This shame was now clear to them, and they didn't want to be vulnerable with each other anymore. And it makes me sad to see how that same effect of sin still carries into many marriages today. There is so much shame that has been brought into the marriage relationship in this broken world 
So many people who are, start out so excited about marriage and only to have shameful things brought into the marriage where they are embarrassed now by who they are. One of the main, I think, contributing factors in today's world and in today's culture is the fact that we live, we dwell in a sexually perverted, pornography-laden society that is constantly providing images and comparisons and unrealistic expectations and exploitation of the image-bearing nature of a human being, God's image in the human being, and contaminating the way people think and see each other in the marriage relationship. We're constantly bombarded with images of fake people on magazines and billboards and televisions and computers. There are many men, sadly, even within the church, that are indulging their lust through pornography, not even realizing the unrealistic and sick expectations that they have built up in their own heart and their mind toward their wife and the sexuality within their marriage. A recent news article, not written from a Christian perspective at all, exposed the growing awareness of these dangers, even among unbelieving people. The article goes like this. Britain's leading sex and relationship experts have revealed their fears that pornography use damages relationships. 70% of men aged 18 to 34 admitting to using porn at least once a month, and the use of it by both men and women is becoming more and more prevalent. But at what cost? Some of the experts cited said, porn can affect a men's ability to form relationships with real women rather than those on their laptop. One psychotherapist, Karen Lobrozani, says, more and more young people, girls as well as boys, are learning about sex through pornography, and it's having a devastating effect on their perception of themselves and their bodies. So we're just talking about unbelievers recognizing the obvious damages of pornography. Not to mention the spiritual implications that we know as Christians, as followers of Christ, of what's really going on, the sickness of what's really going on behind that. And I find it tremendously troubling that we live in a society and in a nation that is called biblical speech hate language and pornography free speech. It's sick. It's how we've reversed everything in our perspective, in our purview of sexuality. The world has brought so many false expectations and dirtiness into marriage in this way. I mean, it's on both sides. I've done counseling, a lot of marriage counseling over 17 years, and I've heard it all, I've seen it all, and these external sinful practices that bring shame into the marriage, not, not just through pornography, but I mean, ladies, you might see this uh, movie or this, read this book, and boy, that guy, he's so romantic, and he's so handsome, he always says the right things at the right time, and let me just clue you into something, like, for the rest of us, no one writes us a script when we get home from work, or when we go on a date with you, you know, we don't get 20 scenes to get it right, and no one does our hair and makeup for us, I mean, we're just guys, and yet I've seen these expectations come from every level in the world. And I do have to say a word 
to those who might be bringing sexual immorality in their bedroom or into their marriage, especially from a man to a man, I would say, how dare you invite a harem of other women into your marriage relationship through a computer? Because that's what it is. Oh, it's just an innocent thing, everyone. Just scroll through. No, it's not. It's, you might as well just line up a harem of women because that's exactly what you're bringing into your marriage. Your, if your wife is not the picture of what's perfect for you, then you need to do everything you can to nurture that desire back to where it needs to be. Cutting off all other influences. Of course, add enough junk food to your diet and the healthy stuff all of a sudden doesn't seem to have its appeal anymore. You have to get rid of the junk. You have to start retraining your taste buds. Direct your eyes towards your wife. Invest your heart with her. Flirt with her. Be playful with her. And tell yourself that she is the picture of what is perfect for you. And God knew that when he put you together. Well, I just can't stop. I'm just in this pattern of, I just can't stop. I try and I'm successful. I've heard it so many times. And I'm going to be done with this whole, oh, you know, you're suffering from an addiction. We just need to, just stop. I can't, I told you, Josh, I just can't stop. Yes, you can. The Bible says you can. God says you can. The Holy Spirit says you can. No, but I really can't. I'm caught up in this cycle. If I followed you around from morning to night, day to day, and looked over your shoulder, would you? Well, I probably would because I just can't stop. If I held a gun to your head and I said, the first thing you look at, if you open that computer and you intentionally go on something and you look at something, I'm going to shoot you. Would you look at it? Well, probably not. Why not? I thought you couldn't stop. Well, I don't want to die. So what you're saying is actually not that you can't stop, but you love that more. That's what it is. You love that more than you love your wife. You love that more than you love and fear God. You love that more than the potential consequences that you don't yet see. But let me guarantee you, every single time that happens, a flirt, that woman who tells you how great you are, that guy who just meets all your emotional needs, whatever it is, every time a temptation is given into, another trigger is pulled. That's how you need to see it every time. It's destroying something. It will put to death some good thing that God wants to do. And the shame it brings is heavy. Not only to the person who is the victim of it, but to the person who perpetrates it because they're ashamed, or they should be, especially if they claim to follow Jesus of what they've done. And that just breaks down communication and it breaks down intimacy. And pretty soon, all that God wanted to build is being destroyed by shame. Instead, we ought to let the images of the scripture set our expectations. The Bible says in Proverbs 31, verse 30, that a woman who fears the Lord is to be highly treasured. And in Proverbs 28, verse 20, that a faithful man who has character and courage is to be highly valued. We need to set our expectations in the right place and root out the things that bring shame into our marriage. There should be no shame there. There should be intimacy and fellowship with each other. We'll get to the solutions here in a moment, but let's continue down the path. Before sin, there was no shame, and before sin, there was no blame. There was no blame. In chapter 2, again, look at verse 22. We read, The rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I want you to notice something very important, that immediately when Adam sees his bride, his wife, he takes personal responsibility and ownership of that relationship. In other words, when he sees her, he doesn't go, oh, the nag. Oh, this is going to be difficult. Oh, this is going to be a pain. Oh, this is going to, oh, where can I go? What football game can I turn on? Which friend can I call? No. He saw her and said, that's me. I'm responsible to nurture, to cherish, to take care of, to protect. That's me. That came from me. That's different from everything else, every other relationship. This is unique. The word woman is a compound Hebrew word, ish, which means from man and Shah, which means an individual. She is unique. She's an individual. She is a person, but she's from you. I love Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to rule over him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from near his heart to be loved by him. Isn't that powerful? I remember the very first wedding ceremony I officiated. I was really nervous, and somehow this couple asked me to do their wedding. I hadn't even really spoken ever before. And so I made all my notes, and I got it all, and I'm intently trying to focus on my notes and make sure I get every word right. And I came to the part where I wrote, God gave the woman to compliment the man. And what came out of my mouth and said was, God gave the woman to complicate the man. And I'll tell you, I mean, (laughs) marriage has become complicated because of sin. And this is what God is still calling, though, all husbands to today, to take responsibility in your marriage, to lead your marriage, to take responsibility for things, whether they're your fault or not, to see your wife as part of you, an extension of who God made you both to be together, and vice versa. In that first marriage, there was no singling out and blaming each other, just unity, just contentment. But then once sin entered into the world, and once God confronts the sin of Adam and Eve, what happens? The blame game begins, doesn't it? Adam was walking after a day farming one day with his sons before the murderous event. And as they were walking by, Abel peeked over and he saw this flaming sword and this beautiful garden. He said, Dad, why couldn't we live over there? To which his dad responded, well, son, we did, but your mother ate us out of house and home. (laughs) There was only men laughing on that one. No, but seriously, look at chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 11 through 13. Adam and Eve's eyes are open. They realize they're naked. And God said to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, yes, Lord, I did. I'm sorry. No. The woman you gave me. And notice how he doesn't just blame the woman. He also blames who? God, because it's the woman you gave me. She is the one who got us into this mess. Completely negating and neglecting the fact that God told him this is the rule. You've just been listening to another edition of The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins. 
If this is the first time you've tuned in to this broadcast, we want you to know that we're a ministry based out of Grace Calvary in St. Joseph, Missouri. This radio program wouldn't be possible without our faithful listeners' support. We love to hear that our listeners are praying for this ministry and are grateful for those who feel led to give financially as well. Would you consider giving to this ministry? If so, simply go to theascendinglife.com, find the About tab, click on Grace Calvary, and then look for the Give link at the top of the page. If you're interested in getting to know us a little better, you'll be able to access more information about our church as well. Theascendinglife.com is where you need to go. You can watch us online via Facebook. Just search for Grace Calvary Chapel. Going back to our website, you can listen to a variety of teachings that Pastor Josh has given, as well as find a way to submit a prayer request. That's all at theascendinglife.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We trust that this message has met you right where you are and that God will use it to awaken you to the love, truth, and power of God. May you go about the rest of the day with that at the forefront of your mind. From all of us here on the production team, thank you for listening. We hope you'll come back again for another broadcast of The Ascending Life. Reaching up, we're pressing in.